Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, Victor Davis Hanson, the star, the namesake. He's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is a syndicated columnist, an essayist, a farmer, a military historian, a classicist, a best-selling author, a political analyst. He's everything. He's got a website, victorhanson.com. We're going to talk about that later. What are we going to talk about first off? Gosh, I've been wanting to talk about this guy for a while, Victor. It's Sam <laughs> Brinton, the very, I don't know, is it, is it okay if I say odd? The odd Biden administration bureaucrat who also is an airport thief. And we'll talk about him and other things that are, I think, more important right after these messages, which are important. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, just a little from you, please, on... Mr. Brinton, who is a very controversial and colorful and flamboyant appointee of the Biden administration, he is quote unquote gender fluid. He sticks it in your face. But he also, when he travels, seems like he leaves Washington without luggage and he returns home to Washington with luggage. He, uh, he's been arrested. Uh, for two um, acts of somewhat serious airport thievery in Minneapolis and in Salt Lake City. So he, is he a, he's a minor, maybe not minor, mid-level Department of Energy appointee, very much an appointment very much made because of what it symbolizes. We're, we're hiring this flamboyant, um, trans, whatever, LGBTQ plus ca character. Um, but it seems he he's not fireable. He's done some very egregious things, felonious things, and he is yet to be fired. Victor, any thoughts on Mr. Brinton, what he's done, and maybe what it more symbolizes on behalf of the Biden administration? Well, I, I thought the whole point of the civil rights movement was that people wanted equality of opportunity. And when the civil rights movement expanded beyond the binary of white-black and to include women and Hispanics and Native Americans and homosexuals and now transsexuals or transgendered, then the point was that everybody just wanted to make that incidental, not essential to who you were. But it turns out that didn't happen. So this character, that that's who he is. He he wants to on social media. He wants to saturate pictures of him in a dress. He likes the idea that he's feminine and masculine or whatever. He's fluid. I guess he at various times identifies with one or the other or neither or both sexes. And that and he's supposed to be in charge of our nuclear waste in the Department of Energy. So you would think that the degree that he engages in social media, it would be about, I'm the new deputy secretary for waste nuclear waste removal. And this week, I'm going to talk about ceramic uh, coating it. This week, the salt mines. Just give us, you know, that's what you do. He went to MIT, and he's always bragging about his credentials. But that's not all he... So now when we talk about him, he gets in your face and he does these pictures and he says that he's got a dog fetish. So he likes to either dress up as a master or a dog. And that has some, I don't know quite what the sexual connotations or the acts are, but it's supposed to, I guess, give us the willies. I don't know what it is. It's supposed to shock us. Okay. So, you know, you want to get, you want to make that your, your primary identity. 
we don't want you to. We're not asking you to. We're not prejudiced. We don't really care what you do in your private life, or we don't even care in your public life. We want you as our energy deputy secretary to talk about energy, but he won't do that. So now we find out, and this is a little murky, that he he's a thief. He's a kleptomaniac. So he goes, and I don't know what the mechanics are, Jack. I've heard both, that he goes and spies people who check in and and fixates on somebody with a a wardrobe or a piece of luggage that meets his standards and then he goes to the you know he sees the connection and I don't believe that but then he he just goes in and he steals it or he goes to the baggage claim and looks for feminine type luggage and steals it but that doesn't really matter because he's a thief He's a thief, and he's taking things that are not his, and some of them are very valuable. And then he's a liar, because when he shows up on videos, and they know from the videos where he went in a car, and they talked to him in his hotel room, he says he didn't do it. Or he might have. then he says he might have done it inadvertently, uh, but he'll return, and he doesn't. He takes the bag and he keeps using it weeks later. And then it's not an isolated right. incident. Whether it's in Minneapolis, it turns up in Nevada. So this is a serial thief and a serial liar. And he chose to bring attention to himself on basis of publicizing his fetishes and his fluidity that he said were inseparable from his competence on the job. So now people are going to say, okay, I guess that's what we have to do. We have to say that maybe your lifestyle is connected with your job and maybe your lifestyle is connected with stealing things and lying about it. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the final act of this pathetic fable, play or whatever, psychodrama. All of the above. All of the above. And we're asking ourselves, why isn't this man fired? He's under, he's been charged with felonies. And he's on temporary, I guess you say leave, but we want to know if he's being paid. That's what I don't understand about the federal government. When they put you on leave while they investigate you, you're not working. So it's kind of better than working, right? You get paid I mean, you're under suspicion, but that's not due to anything in your job. But you brought that on yourself. But you kind of say, you know, eight to five, you don't even have to show up, but we'll pay you your full salary. I don't get that. So they won't announce, they being the Biden administration, whether he's on paid leave or not. But he should be temp- he should be suspended without pay until they find out whether he's guilty or not. And I think by his own admission that he took it. He's guilty. And this finally brings up one last uh, one last aspect to the story, and that is we see this with Brittany Griner, that she has identified not as a woman basketball player, but as a black homosexual woman basketball player who then is, I guess, posing as 
opposed to American traditions and customs, i.e. she doesn't want the national anthem. She says it's not fair that she has to listen to that, nor mm -hmm. should other women have to listen to that, although she may change her views when she gets she's back in the United States for a while. But my point is this is that, again, if you want to pose uh, and use your lifestyle and get that acclaim and all of that attention, and that's what she's getting because each story is about her struggles and her pride and all of this. And then you say things or you do things that are embarrassing to your job. And I think it is embarrassing to go over to a foreign country known, known for being autocratic at a period of hostilities with the United States. I don't know why anybody right now would go over any time to Russia. But if you did go over to Russia and you knew that what the Russians are thinking and operating, then the last thing in the world, you'd bring CBD oil and give them any flimsy excuse to railroad you into a prison sentence. Just like if you were transgendered and you're putting things on the Internet to brag about the superiority of your dresses or all of the, your lifestyle, then the last thing you want to do is be stealing women's clothes. And you get, you know, we as a society can't say anything. Our propagandist enemies do. Vladimir right. Putin's having a field day with these stories. Right. But uh, I have to think uh, of anyone he could have arrested, any American. I don't know. I think he must have thought two or three steps ahead that somehow or other, if I pluck this one out, of course the Biden administration is going to try to make some swap for her because she, in American terms or American cultural terms, she she checks off any number of boxes, right? Woke boxes. So very, I have to think this was a very calculated um, effort on, on Putin's uh, uh, part. Oh, he does. I mean, the new Sammy and I talked about that. The NBC story was suppressed and it basically said that Biden was lying, that Biden said we either had to get Britney or we got nobody. No, Putin's not that stupid. He's evil, but he's not stupid. Completely stupid. And what he said and what NBC reported, which is probably true, is he said, I tell you what, it's going to be one to one. I want my global terrorist arms merchant to do more damage and kill more Americans. But in exchange, you have a deal now. Would you want Britney? The person who won't stand at your national anthem? Or do you want this ex-Marine that we've trumped up charges? And he didn't take drugs in, but he's we think he's a security operative or something. And that's who you get. And so the Biden administration apparently lied about that and said we had no choice. No, they had a choice, and they took Brittany, of course. Right. And so Putin then has got his Cheshire grin and he's saying, hmm. And as Sammy and I talked the other day, I looked at Russian TV and I, you know, it's this United States doesn't like white males. It doesn't like Christians. It doesn't like patriotic people. It prefers people who will not salute or support the national anthem to people who have served their motherland. I think they use the word motherland. And this is who we're dealing with. And right. 
the sad thing about it is this is we're getting into we not we're learning this week about revisiting the libyan bombing lockerbie and looks like we're going to maybe find some iranian fingerprints on it and iran is really upping its uh surrogate war in on the northern israeli border they're getting close because they have nothing but contempt for the biden administration to a um a bomb they want us to go back into the deal so they can extract more concessions they're having this turmoil and one of the things they're going to do is they're already doing is take hostages and so when mr bout was exchanged everybody around the world is saying hmm if they're going to give up the world's greatest arms merchant who sells terrorists to kill Americans, they must not care about Americans very much unless they have a certain profile. So as a would-be hostage taker who wants maybe like the Taliban people they got for Bo Bergdahl or her, let's see. Hmm. Let's take hostage a deserter. Let's take hostage somebody won't stand for the flag, gay, black, female. But let's not take hostage a white male because you get nothing for them. Whether it's Mr. Fogel, the high school teacher, or Wheeland, the Marine, you get nothing. So we're going to take a quote-unquote marginalized person or somebody who feels like we do, that they don't particularly feel comfortable with the United States, and we're going to get somebody of his caliber. And that's what the legacy is. And I think we're going to see a lot of hostage taking. That's going to be a lot of political hostage taking. That's going to cause a lot of internal dissension because the diversity, equity, inclusion racket has now gone to hostage taking. Right. And the hostage, whether a hostage person is traded for or swapped for, will depend on their diversity, equity, inclusion profile. A fact well known to our enemies. Amen. Damn. Well, Victor, um, let's let's move on to some other people who have low Americans who have a low view of of America. And that's the 51 intel agents who signed that infamous letter before the 2020 elections uh, that Hunter uh, Biden's laptop was had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation, et cetera. So Kevin McCarthy, who as of today, um, and we discussed this on a recent a recent podcast, still unclear of of his whether he will has the 218 votes to become the speaker, but let's discuss him as the presumptive speaker. Uh, he has come out uh, here's a headline from. Daily Mail. McCarthy vows subpoenas for 51 intel agents who signed letter saying Hunter Laptop story was part of Russian collusion. And well, that's about it. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. I I think none of these folks have shown, not a single one of them, Victor, has shown any the slightest admission of wrong, wrongdoing, even after the facts have come out. What do you think about what Kevin McCarthy is doing here? And Victor, if you have any other things you want to say about Kevin McCarthy and his speakership potential, go ahead. Well, not one of them has apologized. In fact, a couple of them said, well, we didn't quite sort of maybe not said it was. Remember, it said they look like it looked like. 
So they had that little catch, but then it was, remember, John Brennan cooked it up. He'd already lied once under oath, and then about, as I said, staffer computers in the Senate, and then he lied again when he said there was no collateral damage and drone attacks. And then he got another liar, Clapper, to go on, and then they got, I think, even people like Leon Panetta. So they got 51 people to say that probably could have, should have, should have, maybe is Russian disinformation. I think it was in mid-October. It was right before the election. And guess what? It fed right into Joe Biden. I think it was the second debate in which he said when Trump brought it up, oh, no, no, 51 experts, CIA directors, director of national intelligence. So it was designed, how it worked was Joe Biden called him up or his operatives called him up and said, that crazy damn hunter, he's under one of his wild binges again. And the sucker went in and he left his laptop. He does, he loses everything. And this guy's got his laptop and it's got Hunter naked. It's with prostitutes. And it mentions Joe Biden getting a cut from all of these payoffs. And we got to squash this, but the damn thing is authentic. We know it is. And so the you guys in the FBI go get that. And they did. And then get get us some cred. Get call up all of our left-wing buddies and say that it's Russian disinformation. I know the Mueller thing blew up, but let's try it again. And just lie and say that this the Ruskies did it, just like they did the Steele dossier. And we'll get the New York Times and this. And then you know what? Get Michelle and Barack and everybody else to call their friends at Twitter and make sure that they go after Trump and they keep this thing quiet and get the FBI calling Twitter each week and get this handled so that Joe can get up there and say that it's not Hunter's. It's a complete lie. And that's what they did. So that's why Trump got so infuriated because after the election polls, listen, a lot of people heard all of that. They heard Joe Biden on national TV say this is a fake Russian disinformation. And I know it is because 51 experts said that it was, that we called up and begged them to lie. And that's how it happened. And they have no remorse. And Kevin McCarthy's trying to bring attention to it. But you know what's going to happen. They're going to call these guys up, Brennan and Clapper, and they're going to do a either a James Comey 245 times. Uh, to the best of my memory, hmm, I'm not sure that I, uh, I remember that. Ah, you want to know on what basis did I ever see the laptop? Uh, you know, I can't remember whether I did or not. Well, did you, did you make any forensic investigation? Yes, I, I did. But I just can't remember when it was. And that's what they're going to do. And they're going to say they're no more going to charge me with perjury than they did Fauci or anybody or Jack Dorsey or anybody else. And so, yes, bring them up there and make them say that and have this show to us what horrific people they are. But they're not going to lead anything. Not until nothing's going to change until you have power and power in our system is defined by 60 senators if you're the out party. Right. Are 51 senators and a control of the House and a president in your party, then you can do something, but right. not now. I mean, and so as far as Kevin McCarthy, he has one argument that I find somewhat persuasive, and he that is 
that when everybody's demanding new leadership, understandably so, he's saying, well, you didn't take the Senate. You didn't gain in the Senate again, again, again. And under when I've been House Minority Leader, we picked up seats. And we picked up seats even in 2020 when Trump lost. And we didn't lose as many as we thought we would in 2018. And uh, now that I'm the House Speaker, you can go blame the the people who are in each state. We lost gov- we lost two governorships. We lost a Senate seat. But guess what? We picked up 10 House seats. So why are you after me? That's right. his argument. And he's got a point. And I think when you're looking at people in the House that are pretty conservative, like a Jim Jordan and others, they're pretty much behind him. And so the renegades, Matt Getz and all the rest of them, Biggs or whatever, they don't have a viable, uh, they don't have a viable alternative. Right. And if they were to, you know, touch the third rail and go over to the left and see if they can get votes, that would be the end of them. And so you've got people like Mark Levin, who's making a good argument against them and said, okay, you want to destroy Kevin McCarthy? You don't want him? Who is your speaker that can win the election? And there's nobody. And so if if this whole ploy of dragging it out was to send a message to Kevin McCarthy that you better be a lot more conservative than Paul Ryan was, then maybe it'll work. We'll see. Victor, you mentioned... Our friend Tony Fauci, and he wrote a goodbye. He wrote an adios. Another one. <laughs> piece in the, and it's the goodbye that never ends. The long goodbye. Uh, very long. Let's talk about that right after these important messages. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We are back with the Victor Davis Hansen Show. It's snowing here in Connecticut. I I heard it was hailing, hailing uh, out there in Selma, California. Victor, couple two 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 points, uh, two little free commercials before we get to 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 the little. Uh, dictator. One is that our listeners should should be visiting and should be subscribing to victorhanson.com. That's your official formal website, which collects all kinds of links to various appearances. You're on other podcasts, uh, things you've written for American Greatness, 
and other places, but also things you write exclusively for victorhanson.com. Folks, if you don't subscribe to the website, you cannot read those articles. They're called ultra articles. Victor writes, I don't know, two or three a week. Victor, that four-part series that you, on extremism, it's now, you said it was only before, it's six-part series. It's an excellent series, folks. Of course, you talk about Tony Fauci uh, in it. So uh, it's $50, discounted at $50 a year, but for five bucks initially, test it out, and you will regret not having done so sooner. As for me, Jack Fowler, I'm the senior fellow at the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. We are determined to strengthen civil society. And I write a free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts that offers 12 to 14 recommended readings. I read this great piece earlier in the week. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt of a couple of paragraphs. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll find it interesting. It's free. We're not creating a mailing list. We're not trying to sell your name. Subscribe at civilthoughts.com. Victor, our little friend, leaving federal government with lots of money, by the way, <laughs> lots of patents, lots of patent royalties. He wrote uh, today in the New York Times, again, today, the 11th. Here's what he said. Uh, the United States is reminded of the importance of continued investments in basic and clinical biomedical research. The major successes of COVID-19 of the COVID-19 pandemic have been driven by scientific advances, particularly life-saving vaccines that were developed, proven safe and effective in clinical trials and made available to the public within one year. An unprecedented feat. Other lessons are painful, such as the failures of certain public health responses domestically and globally. We also must acknowledge that our fight against COVID-19 has been hindered by the profound political divisiveness in our society in a way that we have never seen before. Decisions about public health measures such as wearing masks and being vaccinated with highly effective and safe vaccines have been influenced by disinformation and political ideology, not written, just, of which my fingerprints are all. Yeah, I mean, he just, that was very good because he just described what he was. So take mask, you know, one mask. Nah, we're not going to wear a mask. Wear one mask. One mask. Nah, wear two. Cloth's okay. No, cloth's not okay. Don't wear cloth. Herd immunity, yeah, it's going to be, I don't know, 50, 60, no, 70, no, 80, no, 90, no, natural immunity is not as good as vaccination. Hey, get a vaccination. You know why? Don't worry about the other guy. It's 96% gold standard. It's going to protect you. So if you go get a vaccination, you will not infect your family and you can't get infected. Now, if there's some yokel over there who's an ignoramus, a Trump supporter, who knows what, and he didn't want to get vaccinated, that's his problem. But you are protected. You know, everything that he said that I just recap was a lie. And when he says it's completely safe, we don't know that yet. And, and I say that because... I don't know. I think Germany has a pretty advanced scientific community. They just announced that males between the age of one and 18 are not going to be given these M messenger RNA vaccinations. And they went further 
and said, contrary to Dr. Fauci, that they can't find a recorded case of a male 1 to 18 who died of COVID, but they can find a lot of myocarditis cases and some deaths from 1 to 18 males who were vaccinated. So, and that all that stuff doesn't register with Fauci. So then he says misinformation, and we have him right after the COVID pandemic reaches our shores, and we have mention of the Wuhan lab, and he's already saying that travel bans are not that important, and then they are important once we enact them to the criticism of the international community, and Donald Trump is to be praised for that. But then he says uh, it's a bright, shiny object in these private Francis Collin emails to worried scientists of gain-and-function research. And they're basically saying to him, we, we hear that, you know, that the CDC and the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases has been subsidizing gain-of-function, gain-in-function research that's outlawed the United States. And they got around the law by going to their buddy Peter Daszak's Echo Health who then channeled the federal cash to the Wuhan lab where the virus escaped. And that can't not be true. That's what he told us. And now we're learning from somebody who worked for Echo Health, Dr. Huff. And we heard we had on our show Peter Quay, very astound. Um, he was terrific. He was yeah. wonderful. And we're hearing all of these experts, and they're saying the viral sequences, the genome, the circumstances, it's Nicholas Wade, the science writer, all of them are saying now it looks pretty certain that this thing escaped from the lab. Now, what I'm trying to say is very important. I'm not accusing him of anything, but why is he so erratic? Why is he so self-contradictory? Why does he say one thing on Monday and refute it on Tuesday? Why does he go after his enemies to such a degree? Why, why, why? And I think the reason is deep down in his heart that he knows that he made a decision to give money to a third party who, even after he rigged an investigation with Lancet, could not hide the truth that Dr. Fauci and his comrades in the federal health apparatus gave money, not a lot of money, not, you know, not millions of dollars that did this and that. The French built the lab, so they're culpable as well. But we gave them some money, and that some money was aiding a particular researcher to construct an artificial virus that had a propensity, as we're learning, to mutate in a way that we probably haven't seen before with these types of viruses. And it has an ability to get into the lungs. It is. It has ability to confuse and destroy the immune system, create long COVID. It's killed well over a million Americans. It's sickened probably 200 million. It's causing right now untold damage. And if you think about it logically, it goes back to Dr. Fauci, not the whole responsibility, but he is culpable for fun, for funding and subsidizing the research that led to this virus. And that is something that we can't still quite grasp. Given the violation be, of the of the of a restriction on that also. Yes. Correct? That would okay. be the greatest story, I should say, greatest 
crime in the history of modern medicine that a U.S. virologist in charge of $50 billion in grants and one of the key kingpins of all policy as it pertains to epidemics Uh was sending money to conduct research in communist China in a lab overseen by the People's Liberation Army that was engaged in a type of research deemed far too dangerous in a far more sophisticated United States with far more guardrails. So he basically gave money for them to pour gas on fire and it blew up. And I think that's the key to the whole persona of Dr. Fauci. He spent the last two years not engaged necessarily in doing the following. Hey, I'm having a symposium on Zoom. Here's mask. So I want the view of all the people's research who says it's an ironclad preventative. I want the next group to come in and say, no, it works in some cases, depending on the mask. And I want the other group to say, you know what, as much as it seems crazy, it doesn't work. And then lockdowns. I want Scott Atlas and Jay Bachari and John Yanis to come in here and tell me that the Swedish model, when it's all said and done, will have a lower total death rate than the countries that lock down because they will have fewer suicides, spousal abuse, drug abuse, and their economies will be much more robust and they will have a normal healthcare system where people get checked for cancer. I want that view. And then I want the view that said, no, you got to lock it down and we're going to aggregate this and hash it out. And then we're going to try to all of us contribute to the majority opinion. And I will have published a minority opinion. He didn't do any of that. Instead, they just went after, as we saw from the Twitter revelations about Jay Bacharya, one of the, nicest guys you could find, one of the most talented people you could find, and Scott Atlas, wonderful person. And we we find out that Dr. Fauci's, was it his daughter, Jack, working for Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uncanny. And so I think he doesn't look well. He looks, Wayne, I think he dodged the bullet because Rand Paul will not be a chairman of a Senate committee. He's not in the majority, but he will be vocal. But uh, he cannot tell the truth. And the reason is, why would somebody with 40 years in charge of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, what's wrong with him? What's going on? And I think what's going on is that he and his God know that he had a role in subsidizing a type of research that was outlawed in the United States, was too dangerous, and was especially insane to allow that to take place in the lab under the communist Chinese directorship. And it leaked out, and then he panicked. And ever since then, it's been one effort after another not to allow that to be known fully. And he says, well, you know, he says on Monday, uh, it's from a pangolin or bad. Everybody knows that. And then on Tuesday, so I, I didn't say, I have an open mind. You know, there's some conspiracy. It might be. You know, it could be from a lab, but and that's what he does. He make he says he's not going to make fun of people who thinks it's from the lab, even though it's the majority view now. And then the right. next day he does. And so he's got to go. He should have never been there. He's been there. 40 something, maybe 40. close to 50 years, closer to 50. than 40. Man's got to know his limitations and he doesn't. 
and yeah. um, he's not he's not if we had, if we had somebody if we had Jay Bacharya or John Yanides or even even somebody who from was Trump's advisor like Scott Atlas any of those three if they were in charge of this policy it would have been a much different policy yeah. we would be like Sweden like now we'd have more yeah. no more dead probably a lot fewer dead we wouldn't have destroyed the economy we wouldn't have these cancers and spousal abuses and kids special needs kids that are in wretched condition and all these people that lost two years of schooling and this crime rate and I keep going back to this woman in the bank who said to me, I I am terrified because when I, I have had one time in my life, a person came in with a mask and now everybody does, meaning I saw a criminal with a mask. <laughs> it's right. almost a little game and every night in Fresno County, you look in the news or there's a story and there's somebody that walks into a liquor store with a mask, right? And they're not surprised. And then the right. person robs them or pulls out a gun so we live in abnormal times and it's time to stop it and By the stopping way, it means he's got to exit stage right he well where he came his from. exit yeah his exiting though he leaves behind a sort of a, a religion of um of COVID religion in this sense, you, know, you you've suffered greatly for COVID and millions of other people have all kinds of different uh, issues. Uh, here's one, and we don't have to elaborate on this, but it's just like one case of of what are the manifestations, what are the consequences of the of what Fauci has done and what he's created. This is a from um, a headline from the Daily Mail to date, and this is from Duke University Hospital. Hospital condemns girl to death over COVID jab. Mother of adopted fourteen year old. Pleads for help after Duke Hospital refused to perform life-saving kidney transplant because, why, Victor? Because she is not vaccinated. She's not vaccinated. He made yeah. that into a religion. He's made that into a religion. And you can't. And now that everybody's either, almost all Americans have had COVID, and I've had it twice, and I've had two Moderna vaccinations, and I can tell you that I got, Delta over a year ago, right after they told me, he announced it. Don't worry about Delta. We know that that Moderna shot is ironclad. And then he, they said, if you have antibodies from the shots from Delta, you cannot get Omicron. I got Omicron. And then they said, you know, it's not as it's not as serious as Delta. I still have long COVID, and it's bizarre the autoimmune response. So I'm not, I'm just saying that all the information that he didn't express a doubt in disseminating turned out to be false, all of it. So if you heard him in March of 2020, when he was telling people to go on cruises and dates and travel bans wouldn't work and there's no need for mask. And then all of a sudden he just flipped and then he was giving pontificating about herd immunity and vaccination. It was all wrong. And then his subordinates and he himself were praising the Chinese when we know that they had basically run a criminal enterprise yeah. and squashed the truth. And they rigged all of the investigations and destroyed evidence. Yet he had the audacity to tell us that they were doing a good job. They were a police state. They were locking, welding people into their, welding the locks on their doors. 
They were nightmarish Orwellian. They were horrific. And right. he acted as if they were a, a partner with us. In the very beginning, they were threatening to withhold uh, protective equipment if we didn't back off our accusations. And remember how he operated. And he operated with this huge pot of money as the highest paid employee of the federal government. And every conference, every convention, everybody knew that if you got on the wrong side of Anthony Fauci, he was going to shut down your lab. And so they were terrified, they being the medical research community. They should have said. And then people I can I get really angry about not because I had I have this long COVID that I'd like to get over with much more rapidly than I am. But more importantly, I had colleagues I saw. I I knew Jay Bacharya, not well, but I know Scott Atlas fully well. And I know exactly what happened to him. And when you go back to those dark days of, my gosh, you go back to September, October, November of 2020, and you walk across the Stanford campus with Scott, or you're at Hoover, and you read what people are saying and talking. They they treated him like he was a criminal, and they misquoted him, and they and that that was all sort of directed by Burks and Fauci, and read Burks's memoir. It was it, they went after it. And they went after him because he basically said there's no scientific evidence that your mask wearing for younger people or vaccination for younger people is going to do much good. And you're just taking all of your resources and you're having a scattershot, unfocused approach. And we need to focus on people over 60 and rest homes, especially get them vaccinated, get them protected. Do not shut down the schools. Do not shut down the medical facilities do not shut down the economy or you're going to kill more people than COVID. That's what he said. He never said what they, that was what I got the angriest about Jack on the Stanford campus, the doctors and everybody said what he didn't say. He, they kept saying, well, he wants everybody to go out and get infected and get natural immunity. And he's going to kill. He never said that. He said that if the older elderly community is protected and isolated, then the younger community, especially children, if they're infected, they're probably not going to die and they're not going to be seriously ill. And that was absolutely correct. And uh, it's just one of those things I look back at it just, and they really, you know, they really took a, a, uh, a gifted doctor's atlas and they tried to destroy his character. They really did. And the Stanford community, I, 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 the reason I'm so angry about this is that when I look at the Stanford community and I see those doctors in the medical school that signed that petition, basically asking him to be fired or his license revoked. I, I read the letters in the Stanford Daily or I saw the way that faculty were treating him or I saw that he had to have a security apparatus you know, system at his home. Right. And I thought, wow, they're doing all this to them. Are they the moral superiors? And I thought, wait a minute. When Ben Shapiro came to Stanford, there were kill the bug signs all over that they put up. Right. Like Holocaust imagery almost. They didn't do anything to them. Well, wait a minute. Stanford coaches were selling admissions to get into Stanford. Well, wait a minute. A person in the English department started a Stanford Antifa chapter and bragged about it. And earlier, a few years earlier, took kids out of the San Mateo Bridge and got them arrested during rush hour. 
and shut down 13 minor accidents that could have been very serious on the Dumbarton Bridge. And no one said anything about, no, wait a minute. We had a business school big scandal about sexual harassment. Wait a minute. The current president right now of Stanford University, who's a scientist, is being accused. I don't want to prejudice that judgment, but he's been accused of doing something that Scott Atlas was never been accused of, and that is doctoring information in a scientific article. Mm. And so that's those that community then says we are morally superior. And we're going to go after Scott Atlas, who didn't do anything, except, yeah. except, except the cardinal sin of working for Donald Trump. Donald Trump and that was right. what it was all about. Mm-hmm. If he had said that, if he was working for Obama, and remember when the swan, when the H one N flu came up and killed, you know, it, it killed sixty thousand people. And Obama said, we're not shutting it down. We're not having a pandemic. And then when the Ebola thing broke out and there were people in Africa and he said, we're not going to have a travel ban. If Scott had said that, they wouldn't have, they say he would have been a popular hero. And later people said, we really blew it with HN1, you know, that the flu, we could have stopped that. But his sin was one, one thing that he couldn't get over. And that was... The President of the United States called him up. I like your editorials. I like your position papers. I would like you to advise me because I don't trust my current advisors. Would you come to Washington? And he followed the call of the President of the United States. And that was a mortal sin, especially in the election year 2020, especially from a liberal university. Well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and the uh, friend of my enemy How's that work? Yeah, the friend of my enemy is my enemy, and that's that's what happened to Scott. Hey, Victor, we have time for well, I hope two more uh, topics, but one uh, more broader topic, and that's uh, safety. That's a word we hear a lot: safe, unsafe, safe spaces. And I'd like to get your thoughts about this right after these important messages. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, I'm prompted by the the incident last week in Virginia. There was about 12 to 16 people who work for a pro-life, pro-family nonprofit were going out for dinner at a restaurant, had made reservations, and an hour or so before, 
uh, were called, were t they were called and told reservations canceled. The reason, and this has been on Fox and other places have reported, the reason is the wait staff felt unsafe with the presence of such Neanderthals who believe, I guess, you know, that abortion is wrong. They could not serve hamburgers to such people. Victor, that that concept of I don't feel safe or the concept of safe spaces. And we had talked earlier before the podcast about a piece you've you've read on the college fix about Pomona College and where safe space mixes with race. But it's a, it is, a, a, I guess, when first used, a lame weenie kind of excuse for I don't want to discuss issues with you, but it has become a weapon, too. Yeah, it's a violation. It's a way you violate the First Amendment. And you say that if somebody is going to speak or visit or have, you just say he's scary. And, and it's sort of like the Jim Crow Confederate arg argument when you'd say, I can't have that black person come into this lunch counter because I don't feel safe. I just don't feel safe around white women. Or I I, I believe in free speech, but I'm not going to have a mixture of the races. That's too dangerous. I don't feel safe. That's what they said. Crazy as it sounds today. But it's an argument to suppress free expression by saying that it's a Supreme Court, you know, you're yelling fire in a crowded theater argument. It's just completely bogus. And that's what people do. They say, I need a trigger warning. I I can't read Mark Twain. I need a trigger warning. I, I need a safe space on campus. What does that mean is I want a place where I can go and it's racially segregated. This is what the the white supremacist in the 1920s and 30s and the apex of the Klan, third manifestation of the Klan did in the Deep South. We need places, segregated places, where we feel safe. And we feel that black people don't like us and we don't like them and we want to feel safe. Well, that's what's happening now. The only difference is it's the quote unquote good people that are doing it. So it has to be good. But you look at the methodology, it's basically Jim Crow as Joe Biden says, 2.0, because if you're down at Pomona, as the College Fix reported, and you want a safe space lounge, well, then how do you keep white people out? You got to get a car, Jack. So you have people that are in the following people of color communities, and they put in a little, I guess, a little machine that lets you in. You don't have the card because you're white. You don't go in. And you don't go in a place... Uh, at a major university because it's a safe space segregated or you're down in the college, Claremont colleges. I think it was one of the Pomona or maybe it was Pitzer and you can pick your, your uh, college roommate by race. Now we had a fair housing, but you don't feel safe. So all of a sudden, let's say it's 1960 and they've just integrated California colleges and a white person said, I don't want any black people being my, I don't feel safe. Well, that's what the argument is now being used. I don't feel safe having a white roommate. I don't feel safe having white people around me. And if you're a professor at Berkeley in education, that's where usually the rot is. And this is rot that they're peddling. How do we get rid of whiteness? We have to get rid of whiteness and destroy whiteness and to white people. And it's just, it's nonstop. 
It's nonstop. It's apologetic. There are no consequences now to say that we want segregated spaces. We do not want these people around us. We want to exclude them on the basis of their race. And it's all based on this idea that we've been oppressed, even in California that wasn't a slave state. And we're oppressed by white people. But when you look at per capita income, they always say, well, you have to, the left says, well, black people can't be, or marginalized people can't be racist because they're victims. Well, is Oprah a victim? Is LeBron a victim? And is the oppressor, the guy, you know, in Modesto, who's changing tires on his back all day that makes $15 an hour, who's never gone to college, a white guy, is he the victim or the victimizer? No. So this thing is getting absurd and it's we're turning into the former Yugoslavia and it's very dangerous because any historian will tell you that once you retribalize and you start going down that tribal route, then everybody goes out just like nuclear proliferation. So there'll come a time when everybody's is going to say, okay, you want racially separated spaces. Okay, go ahead. That's fine with me. That's what they're going to do. And that's going to, that's going to put us back into a pre-civilizational era. They should realize one thing. Each civilization that prospers and matures has one thing in common. They destroyed tribalism. So in ancient Athens, for example, they destroyed the tribal system and everybody became in the Trite system a member of a political union, not their first cousin's union. In Rome, you know, tribus means three. There were three different tribes. That's where we get the English word tribal. And the Roman Republic transcended that and mixed them up, and people could not then be represented in another on the basis of their tribe anymore. And that is an evolutionary modern process that makes your tribe is incidental, but because it's a very strong affiliation, and and yet we're trying to go back to a pre-civilizational situation where we identify by our tribe, and the one thing that I think Barack Obama, to be candid, brought it in because he took the old word diversity and he right. he inflated it and resurrected it and said diversity now means that you're not white, and that means everybody, man. You can be Pakistani, you can be Arabic, you can be black, you can be Asian, but you all have one common thing. You're not white. It's white supremacy and white privilege. And that, and he started that. And he said, now it's not 1090 or 1288%, it's 70-30. And he really got into that. If you don't think that's true, just remember that just collate what he said about the Cambridge break-in with Professor Gage, you know, police are always doing that, attack the police. And then Trayvon, look, Trayvon looks like the son I might never have. Or my grandmother, uh, my grandmother, when she saw somebody, she was a white person and she just got scared when a black man. All of that, you know, never been a proud, uh, never been proud of my, all of that Obama verbiage, which was covered up and contextualized by the media, set the stage to green light what had otherwise been an irrelevant and esoteric and silly little dead end, such as critical race theory, critical legal theory, the views of Kennedy, all that crap. 
and they mainlined it and they brought it into the center of American politics to divide people. And boy, it's like taking gasoline and right. smoking next to it. It'll blow up in your face. And you can really see it when people are getting very tired. And when you get somebody like Joy Reid and night after night after night, she goes on to on white people and white people and white people. And you get the view and those crazy people do the same thing. White privilege, white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, white supremacy, white supremacy, white whiteness, 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 toxic whiteness. And you get it in the universities. And uh, it's not good. People are going to finally say, I'm sick of it. And I think they've already said that. And then how you define sick of it, Jack, because they're going to still do it. You say this, I, I don't care anymore. I'm not a racist. You can call me anything in the world. Call me racist, right. racist, supreme. It has nothing. It has no effect on me anymore. You're the racist. And, to, and when you meet that magic moment when conservatives and Republicans and independents, traditionalists say, you know what? You're the racist. You're the one obsessed. Yeah. You, Oprah, talk about race all the time. You, Meghan Markle, are nothing without race. You, LeBron can't let it go. You always have, you Colin Kaepernick, keep bringing it up. You're all got one thing in common. You're all very wealthy. You're all very successful and you're all functioning very well in a non-racist society. And don't keep playing. It has no effect. Yeah. And then you'll have to have a, if we finally get into a race irrelevancy, then people will have a, a, you know, if Cardi B wants to sing something and it's got the most toxic lyrics in the world with the N-word, somebody will have the guts to say that that's just pornography. Mm -hmm. Talking about the female genitalia in a violent manner that degrades women. Talking about African-Americans with the N-word. I, I don't care. That That's that's just can't. That is just awful. And they can say that without feeling that they're going to be called a racist. Right. Just like you'd say if it was a country western white guy saying it. But until we get there, we're, we're it's not going to be good because it's the last uh, refuge. Calling somebody a racist is the last refuge of a rogue. Right. And when everything else is exhausted, you you say racist, and you say racist more and all, more and more, and it well, loses its its currency. It's it's also the first thing for me to, to for many to label someone else with. Victor, I have to say, I my gut would be that the butcher and the baker would be less caring probably the more i don't care anymore what you have to say call me whatever the hell you want versus leadership i know here in connecticut where i'm in dabble in republican party politics my god that is the great fear of many a state rep that they would be called a racist well you're going to be called a racist see i think that's Regardless. a very important point jack and that is there's 330 million people and most of them people just get along and they don't care they're intermarried they're assimilated they're integrated every family is multiracial in some aspect but then we have this bicoastal elite and the people that are not white that function very well it's kind of a i don't know how to say it. it's an it's a civil war between elites it's Don Lemon getting mad that he's relegated to a, a bad time spot. It's Colin Kaepernick wanting a better Nike or Adidas contract. It's Oprah 
thinking that she can leverage Meghan Markle. It's the view, it's that competition where people who say they're not white are in competition with other elites just like themselves who are white. So they say white privilege, white privilege, and those people get very, because they're very, they're very sensitive to it and they get guilty and it works with them. But for other people who have no white privilege, the majority, it has no, it doesn't, it it doesn't register. They don't care. And so I think that's the problem right now is that you're right. You say wealthy white Republicans, that's a very effective tool against them. But it's not a very effective tool against a long haul trucker down the 99 freeway in the Central Valley. Right. If you see him in a truck stop and you say, hey, you've got white privilege. <laughs> <laughs> he's covered with dirt and he's on his back trying to change a tire. He said, what? And, you know, that's, I'm not a diversity equity inclusion czar, you know. Right. I don't make $200,000 trying to spot something that doesn't exist. So it doesn't have any resonance with them. And so I have some sympathy when people say that the other white elite have privilege because they both have privilege. And what's happening among university professors, universities administrators, media grandees, magnificos in politics, Hollywood actors trying to get better roles with one another, etc. Silicon Valley uh, administrators trying to do all of those people that run everything, one general versus the other general in the military. All of them are are squabbling uh, to, you know, it's a lobster bucket and they're all trying to climb out of the bucket and, and grabbing and snapping at each other. And for the minority, it's a, you're a racist, you're a racist, you're a racist. And for this white privileged person, it's, a, <laughs> I feel really guilty. I feel really guilty, but my best friend or my dad or my grandfather is going to call and help me out. So they feel we're part of the Brahmin class and we're part of the entrenched and we have certain expectations about our kids and we're and me and we're going to get there. And then the people who say they're not white and don't have those traditional leverages, then they use the racist and the state and diversity and proportional. And it's one big squabble among the same class. Right. Victor, the great, <clears throat> excuse me, the greatest privilege I think we all have is that we are, um, Americans that and historically, I mean, we've all won the lottery and for folks to destroy that, to destroy E Pluribus Unum is, uh, is nuts. Now, my friend, I want to, I know we've, we're going long here, but I want to see if I can get just five minutes on, on Victor, the, the military historian to talk about a little a second world war business. And that would be about the Philippines. And this is prompted by my watching the other day for probably the 50th time, the great John Ford movie. They were expendable, Robert Montgomery and John Wayne. And it's about PT boat squadron uh, in the Philippines upon the, the invasion of the island by the Japanese. And I know, Victor, I, you're not a great fan of the PT boats as as military weapons and I. Uh, I I, th I think I encourage folks to read, get your book, The Second World Wars, and read about that and read about hundreds of other wonderful observations you make in that book. Regardless, the point is, it's a movie, an American movie 
about the Philippines. And there's one or two others, Bataan, Corregidor. But, you know, in the minds of Amer Americans who, who are into military history, often through movies, there's been very little attention paid to the Philippines beyond the initial shocking attacks by the by the Japanese. So I'm just curious, uh, two things. Uh, oh, wait, I, I do want to say, having watched the movie, I, I decided I got to read a little more about what happened in, you know, 1944-45 when America, you know, uh, MacArthur, who doesn't really stand up well in your in your critique um when we came back to the philippines and it was brutal it was what happened in the philippines the battle of manila was just savage i, I know we think we know the savagery of the bombing of dresden and berlin etc but i think most americans are aloof to just what happened in the philippines which was a part of america at that time so victor um your th two two thoughts and i in, in in a few minutes, if you if you don't mind, why why does America historically seem aloof to what happened in the war in the Philippines after a certain point? And then um, anything you want to say about about America's strategy in in uh, recapturing the Philippines? It's hard to know because um, it was. It's, it was sort of like Wake Island on a larger scale. Right after Pearl Harbor, you could have made the argument that the Saratoga or they were able to save Wake Island and especially how bravely they later fought in defeat. And we just decided we couldn't do it. So in the case of the Philippines, right after December 7th and it was bombed on the 8th, MacArthur and his staff had been warned and yet they had just gotten, not too earlier, a fresh squadron of B-17s. They had some P-40 fighters, I think, and they had submarines. They had a pretty large force, and they were caught on the ground. And I'm not saying they would have been able to hold out, but um, they didn't quite realize the Japanese would do kind of what they did at Singapore. They would come through the jungle and then Corregidor's guns, we can argue back and forth, were misplaced and they were supposed to protect the harbor at Subic. But the point I'm making is it was sort of like a hostage crisis. It was from December 8th all the way into April that these Americans were surprised. There was a, the Bataan Death March and then they were all holed up in Corregidor. It was supposed to be you know, impregnable, but they were trapped. They couldn't be supplied. They surrendered. They were treated horribly. And then MacArthur fled on a PT boat and then to a submarine. Then he flew and he got over to um, Australia. And so here he is. And he said, I shall return. Everybody had been concentrating on there were two big American bases. There was Manila, Subic Bay, and there was Pearl Harbor. And they were both gone, and everybody thought to win the war, you get them back. And so that was the strategy. And you got MacArthur, and he's the senior-ranking Army officer, and he's going to return. But as the war started to progress and evolve, it didn't, starting with Guadalcanal in the fall of 1942, and then you go and you see the big base at Rabaul pretty much bypassed. And the force 
the center of gravity starts to chain, change, and it starts to be more a marine uh, Nimitz campaign. And it wasn't perfect all the time, but you know when you look in Tarawa, and then you start to go up to Iwo Jima, and then Okinawa, the Marianas, and so when you get into late 1944, what do you want to do to Japan? Do you want to bomb them? Okay, you've got the Marianas, and they're bombing them. Finally, in March of 45, they're bombing them. You know, it's it's fire raids, but they were doing it earlier in January after they took the Marianas in late 44, 45. So my point is, and then what do you do when you get Okinawa? You That's the point. You're right near them. But MacArthur had been very successful in the other route from Guadalcanal. Instead of going straight to Japan, it was, you know, going into the Dutch East Indies and Peleliu and then always to go into the Philippines. But when you start to look at the map, the Philippines isn't quite on the trajectory to going to Japan so that we split our forces because, you know, so we had MacArthur do his offensive and then we changed the name of the task force and then it went with Nimitz and the Marines and then back to the Army and then back. Not that there wasn't cross-fertilization, but uh, there were people by October 1944 that said, look, the British are not going to go back into Burma and they're not going to go back into Singapore. I know that it was the greatest base in the world, in the Pacific, I should say, and it's iconic and they lost it. But they have more pressing strategic goals. Um, I shouldn't say Burma, but into Malaysia. They have more strategic goals in protecting India and supplying China and not going back into Malaysia and 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 trying to retake Singapore. And people said the same thing to us. If you look at it, going back into the Philippines and refighting that war that we lost in 42, now that they're dug in and we're going to have to land and there's hundreds of islands and we're going to, it's a mess. So that is a detour and we shouldn't do it. And McCarthy said, I said I would return and I'm going to, keep my bargain with the Filipino people. But as you say, it led to 100,000 of them getting killed. Plus, because it was street fighting, the Japanese utterly destroyed Manila. And you could argue that one of the reasons that we don't talk about is, and that's a Wendy reason, is that. And people say, well, what if they had just united and a united command and not split their forces and had a huge overwhelming trajectory right after Guadalcanal and just mapped out a stepping stone campaign right all the way to Okinawa and then uh, not worried about what was on the laterals or to the rear and just isolated them, isolated the entire Philippines just like the British did with Singapore. Maybe that would have been a, a more economical way of fighting because they did split their forces and they had overwhelming nu numerical superiority at these islands, but maybe they could have even enjoyed a lot more, especially at places that went bad like Iwo Jima and Tarawa. And then the other issue is that movie it was a great movie of John Ford. Um, they had a big competition with PT boats, as I remember, and uh, they had this, uh, it was the World War One engine, I think it was a Packard engine, big 12-cylinder huge three of them i think and they went really fast and they were they got they came up with a pretty good 
design 40, 40, 35 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour. And the idea was it would have three or four torpedoes. They finally upgraded the 50 caliber to the Bofors gun with 37 millimeters. And the idea was that right now at this point, we don't can't match the Imperial Navy, which has dozens of light cruisers and destroyers, heavy cruisers. But if we have these PT boats, they're very quick. They're very easy to make. We make them out of mahogany and plywood. And maybe they can just resume in and launch their torpedoes and take out cruisers and battleships and zoom out. Well, the problem was that it, the torpedoes initially weren't that good. They had trouble in rough seas. And they did some good things, but that movie tries to exaggerate, um, right. I think, in a good way, because it was filmed during, I think, 45 during the war. 45. Yeah. Yeah. So it's and there's some good performances, but it didn't quite pan out. Partly the Japanese destroyer, to be frank, was the best destroyer in the entire World War II theater. Their destroyers were fast. They were well-built, heavily armed. They were like French destroyers, which were really good too. And it was very hard for, you know, to sink them and to to do anything with them. Even if you had good torpedoes, Japanese had better torpedoes. And um, so it was a very hard thing that they were asked to do. I think part of it was John Kennedy, PTO 109, and that movie that really made PT boats prominent in World War II history. But when you actually go down to what new type of naval weapon really changed the Pacific Naval Theater, you could make a much better argument that what they call Jeep carriers or not light carriers, but escort carriers, 7,000 tons to a light cruiser uh, hull. They put a flat you know, right. runway on top and they made dozens of them. I think they made over 100 of them. And then it was brilliant because when you came up and you upgraded to the Corsair or uh, the uh, Hellcott fighter, all of these other planes that you, you know, the Wildcats and the SPT torpedo bombers, then you could, instead of going to the, the uh, just junking that second tier of 42 to 43 aircraft, they put them on the Jeep carriers. And they, you know, mopped up and they fought on island support. And then they created this destroyer escort, which was a much better idea than the PT boat. And they were cheap, smaller than destroyer, but they had all metal frames. And so the the destroyer escort and the Jeep carrier were American inventions, and they were really brilliant. And they really made a big difference. But uh, Philippines, we don't talk about it much because it was kind of like a... It was an island, but it ended up like Stalingrad, you know what I'm saying, or Verdun. It was just a slog, and it was long, and it was it was a mess, and it it didn't really change the course of the war. When we wow. took in '45, when we took the island, we were still a long way from Tokyo, and nobody there was going to aid the the right. trajectory. The reason that we took Tokyo was because we took the Mariana Islands earlier than the Philippines, or, and they were bombing very successfully the Japanese mainland, and they destroyed 
by, I don't know, May of 1945. They destroyed 45% of the urban core of Japan, and they had mined all of the harbors. And this was with the fire and conventional raids, and they destroyed the industrial output by about 70%. And then we were having Air Force bases, fighter bases on Iwo, and Okinawa was a disaster, 50,000 in that campaign, naval, army, marines, 50,000 casualties, 12,000 dead, Damn. probably. And it was conducted very poorly tactically, but there was a logic to it that that was the next island closer to Japan. And you could make it into a huge floating air, uh, permanent aircraft carrier and you could put five, ten thousand bombers you had them you had b-17s b-24s lancasters new b-29s all coming from factories in the united states or from the european theater but that didn't apply to the philippines yeah so people say well, wow it was bloody but it how did this strategically fit in with the idea of knocking japan out as quickly as possible well a lot of a uh, lot of bodies to satisfy well, that was, ego, one of the, I that, guess. That, that was one of the arguments. The, one of the arguments was, as MacArthur said, you just, well, what do you do? You just bypass everything? <laughs> so you you go up and you, uh, yeah. you take out the head of the snake and the snake's body dies or, or that these bodies are all over the Pacific and they're well stocked and they're dug in and they're killing innocent people. And they're occupying it, and they're not going to give up. And so we say, oh, we won the war. We bombed Tokyo. We were in Tokyo Bay. And they say, <laughs> we're still taking you know, control of Manila, and we have enough supplies to last two or three years. Right. And then you just sort of say, well, we'll just put the war on hold, just kind of putter around and let them starve or let them – that was MacArthur's argument. Right. His argument was anywhere where there are large Japanese forces – and they're in control of strategic ground, and they have allied populations under their brutal sway, we have a moral and military rationale to go in there and stop them and kill them and make them surrender. Because they won't surrender just because Tokyo tells it is fallen. That was the idea. Well, Victor, thanks for, for all of that. And I, I just want to repeat on about the... Uh... Uh, they were expendable. It's just a great movie. I'm not an advocate myself personally. Yeah, Robert Montgomery was in that. He was so, that. I, I oh, really like Robert Montgomery. Yeah. He was a, wasn't he uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, Bew the witch on Bewitch's dad? Pretty oh, was sure. he? Yeah, oh, he okay. was. They oh, a, oh, uh, yeah, they had a that family had a. She remember how she tragically died? I thought she, she was died young, very she young. Oh, she's a beautiful too. lady, right? She was just stunning in a very strange exotic way yeah very yeah. beautiful actress and he was a very that whole family died early uh, uh as i remember cancer i just uh, said i, I say that she, often and i know that some listeners are going to say no victor you're wrong but when i had a, a mother and her grandmother and her two sisters and her nieces and her first right. cousins and my daughter all of these people in the family had a cancer gene and they died very young at least much sooner than right. I otherwise would have. And I, when I had, when I was going through all that because they were dro they were dying, I'd always see if that was anywhere. And I remember reading about the Montgomery family that I think 
Elizabeth Montgomery and her sister died in their 50s or 60s or 40s, 50s, 60s maybe. And he died, I think, in the 60s. He was an underappreciated actor. Yeah, I I think he's terrific. I think he's Lady of the Lake. Also, this movie that begins, like he's in the background. You're looking, it's being filmed from his perspective for for quite a while. But uh, well, anyway, uh, Victor. Uh, we've gone way over, but well worthwhile. M- more words you and wisdom you share. I'm, I'm sure nobody is nobody cares about that, except maybe some people do. Let me tell you, some folks who have have gotten some messages around, and let me air this out. Hey, by the way, whatever platform you're listening to, to this podcast on, thank you. If you listen on iTunes or Apple, please consider ra- rating the Victor Davis Hanson Show. You put zero stars, you can put five stars. Victor deserves 10. Five is all you can give. So do that. Some people leave comments. Here's one. It's from Charlie. It's titled Length of VDH Podcasts. Very appropriate. Sammy. Sammy said that she is receiving comments to shorten the length of podcasts. Please don't do that. My wife and I enjoy every word Victor says. And he is so knowledgeable and communicates. I so hope well. Sammy hears that because you let me rant and rave, and Sammy's got me on a leash. Well, and she yanks my head back uh, I, through cyberspace when I start to get too verbose and wordy. Victor, you're you're an unstoppable force. My <laughs> wife, yeah, wait, let me catch up with this. Uh, he's so knowledgeable, communicates so well. Right. I also enjoy his side journeys into his farm life. I also grew up on a farm. And learn the value of work and responsibility. Even though I am a licensed engineer and spent my career in engineering and software, I always had an interest in history. Dr. Hansen whets my appetite when he does his history talks. Keep it up. Just finished the Second World Wars. I didn't think I needed to read another book on World War II. He sure proved me wrong. I learned so much. Unfortunately, I can't seem to locate some of his books I'd like to read. Please don't shorten the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, folks who are interested in the Second World Wars or any of the other books that Victor writes, go to victorhanson.com, click on books, and you'll you'll find links to them and you can order them. I think I've said this before. I think the Second World Wars makes a great uh, Christmas present. You know somebody who's a history buff, and sure you do. That's that is an ideal gift. Victor, you've been ter- terrific today. So much uh, wisdom. I appreciate it immensely. I'm sure our listeners do. Also, I uh, hope and pray for, that for more rain for for your for the good people of California. And I thank you. Well, you I just said that. Family. I'm looking out the window, and the, this huge black cloud is coming toward me. Well, <laughs> so good, good. You have magical powers. There must okay. be a saint of rain, <laughs> Saint Nimbus, huh? of Claudius Uh, thanks very much folks we'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson show bye 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 everybody